My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Gathering information, collecting evidence, organizing information, communicating information. All these things are really important to campaigns. They're important to resistance movements, but they take time. And it's time that often frontline folk don't have because they're busy fighting off the RCMP, for example, or defending their land. So taking the time to dig into their computers and do a bunch of research and gathering and processing information and communicating it is not necessarily high on the priority list, but it can be useful. That's the voice of Jen Gobby. She and Molly Murphy are today's guests on Talking Radical Radio. This show brings you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are involved in many different struggles, talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening can strengthen all of our efforts to change the world. Gobby lives in Abenaki territory in rural Quebec. She's been active in grassroots movements for the last 20 years, particularly in the last 10, climate justice and solidarity with a range of Indigenous struggles. Over that decade, she's also been pursuing post-secondary education, and today she works as a postdoctoral researcher at Concordia University in Montreal. It's been an important priority for her to figure out ways to use her research skills to support movements, which in her PhD work and since has involved significant work with climate justice and Indigenous land defence movements. The work of research can be tremendously important to movements. It can help them develop their arguments, plan their actions, understand their opponents, and otherwise inform their decisions about intervening in the world. In movements and communities, research happens all the time, often in informal ways that don't get recognized or named as such. But research can take a lot of time, and often folks who are on the front lines of struggle don't have much time because of all the other urgent demands that they face. Through her own experiences and conversations with collaborators in both movement and academic settings, Gobby came to recognize that not only was there this great need for research in the context of frontline struggles, but there were plenty of people in university settings with relevant skills, supportive politics, and time. But these two groups often have a great deal of difficulty connecting. So Gobby founded Research for the Frontlines, an organization that aims to be a sort of, quote, matchmaker and, quote, support infrastructure to foster collaborations between climate and environmental justice movements in Canada and people in universities with both the skills and the time to do the research that movements need. The response from both sides has been enthusiastic. Despite the fact that the organization is in its infancy, she already has a sizable list of willing researchers, and numerous grassroots movements and communities in struggle have been in touch with research questions. Multiple projects are completed, ongoing, or in the planning stages, and she describes some of these in the interview. Molly Murphy lives in Coast Salish territory on the West Coast and is active on the front lines of indigenous-led land defense struggles. In the last year, that has primarily meant the forest protection blockades at Ferry Creek in Pachidat territory on Vancouver Island. In the course of that, she has both witnessed and directly experienced extensive violence enacted by the RCMP. For her, that's raised a lot of questions about the role of the RCMP in facilitating resource extraction and therefore also climate collapse. Moreover, she began to hear people talking about something called the Community Industry Response Group, or CURG, but no one seemed to know much about it. One day, she posted some of her questions to social media. 
Gobby happened to see them, got in touch, and they decided to work together. The team Gobby put together at Research for the Front Lines has, under Murphy's direction, uncovered a great deal about the Kurg, an RCMP unit that is at the forefront of repressing multiple indigenous land defense struggles in the unceded territories on the West Coast. Based on this research, Murphy has been able to circulate important new knowledge directly relevant to the struggle among land defenders she works with at Ferry Creek, in Wet'suwet'en Territory, and elsewhere on the West Coast. And she and the participants from Research for the Front Lines have written the organization's first public-facing publication, an article for the movement magazine Briarpatch, and they have more planned. In the long history of relationships between university-based researchers and grassroots communities and movements, things have often been fraught, to say the least. But in contrast with how this has often happened, Research for the Front Lines is very explicit that in their work, the researchers are not in charge. In fact, it's not even seen as an equal partnership. In the questions asked, the approaches taken, and the outputs produced, it's the frontline community or movement that calls the shots. I speak with Gobby and Murphy about the work of research for the front lines. My name is Jen Gobby. I'm a settler living in ceded Abenaki territory in rural Quebec. I'm a postdoctoral researcher at Concordia University in Montreal. I also teach courses in environment and climate at Bishops and McGill University. But more recently, I've started a new initiative called Research for the Front Lines. Our mandate is to create collaborations between folks on the front lines of the fight for climate and environmental justice in Canada. So, you know, frontline community members, folks who are part of grassroots movements. And we link them up with folks in universities or otherwise who have research time and skills and labor to offer. And so you sort of create these research collaborations and support them. I've been involved with movements for the last 20 years. When I lived in BC, I was part of the natural building movement and sort of sustainability and climate work there. And then since I've been in Montreal for the last decade, I've been really involved with climate justice organizing, also doing organizing in solidarity with Indigenous-led movements. Throughout all that time, I was also pursuing my post-secondary education. So I did an undergrad at McGill and then a PhD at McGill and then a postdoc. And through all that, I've tried to use my research skills and time to support the movements I'm part of, to benefit, to contribute in some way, try to make research useful to those folks. During my PhD, I did a big research project with climate movements and Indigenous land defense movements to do a bunch of collective theorizing and reflection about the state of our movements. And the findings of that research came out in a book last summer called More Powerful Together, Conversations with Climate Activists and Indigenous Land Defenders, published by Fernwood Press. And then since the PhD, during my postdoc, I've worked closely with a team of folks at Indigenous Climate Action, and we've been doing research together on decolonizing climate policy in Canada, so a real policy-focused project. So through that, we've been doing real movement-relevent and movement-led research. And I've been involved in other projects as well during my postdoc, working with grassroots communities, doing research that supports their goals and their initiatives and their thoughts of what kind of research would be useful. Building on all of that brought me to wanting to start an actual organization focusing explicitly on doing research that is for frontline communities and grassroots movements and mobilizing research labor to direct towards those movements in service of those movements. And my name is Molly Murphy. I live on Coast Salish Territory, also known as Salt Spring. I am a builder and a mother and a settler. I've spent the last year, the overwhelming amount of my time at Ferry Creek Blockade, working to try to prevent the last of the old growth being destroyed on southern Vancouver Island, Patchadat Territory. 
And I've been working with Jen Gobby in research for the front lines since maybe August this year to try to investigate the CURG, which is a branch of the RCMP that exists in BC that enforces the removal of protesters from usually Indigenous-led movements on unceded territories. I've also got my start in natural building. That's how I met Jen, actually, and was working towards like, more sustainable ways of doing things, empowering women in the process. And I've overall been more of an action-oriented person, like getting my hands dirty, getting right into things instead of the more academic sides of things. But one of the things that changed my trajectory from natural building was just understanding the aspects of access to land and how all the things that I'm building and all the people I'm building for have over the last 15 to 17 years been all white settler people. And it was a direct reflection on sort of access to land and resources and all the things in the way that our society is imbalanced and kind of realized that I wasn't sure if I could still continue to build these houses and do this work when I'm really just supporting the continuing disproportionate allocation of resources in our society. And it really came from uh, going up to Wet'suwet'en the first time, where I actually did some building for people who are legitimately trying to reoccupy their traditional lands. And it basically felt like the best payment I'd ever received, which was obviously no money, but just the satisfaction and doing real work that felt like it was going for real change. Then got involved with the Ferry Creek blockade early on as a builder, them requiring structures to get through the rainy, cold winters on the southwest coast in Patchadat territory. And I started building kitchens and outhouses and things like that, just filling in the gaps. And then as the injunction came down in February and then actually started becoming enforced in May, I was very present on the front lines, facilitating the ability for people to prevent logging and RCMP from removing the protesters from the roads. And that was when I started getting really curious about the role of the RCMP in climate collapse and how in all my experiences on the different front lines that I had been on, that none of these industries could actually pursue their goals of extractivism without RCMP presence. The fact that we need an armed force to make these things happen was a bit unsettling, to say the least. And I also experienced extreme violence on the front lines by these particular RCMP officers, which is obviously something people of color have been facing in North America for a long time. But it was my first experience being sort of assaulted by the RCMP while peacefully protesting. So I really wanted to try to get to the bottom of how the RCMP or the Kurd specifically, the Community Industry Resource Group, were founded how they were trained, what their roles are, how many places have they been deployed, what kind of tactics do they use. So, Jen, where did the idea for Research for the Frontlines come from, and what was involved in making it actually happen? So the idea sort of evolved over the last, I would say, year or so, as I was thinking about what I want to do after my postdoc, what I want to do with all that I've learned through my PhD, but also with all the skills I've built working in community and with movements. It slowly started evolving conversation with a bunch of others, including Marlene Hale and Lucy Everett, who are two really awesome Indigenous people I've collaborated with and just been thinking over time about how movements and frontline communities often can use, you know, gathering information, collecting evidence, organizing information, communicating information. All these things are really important to campaigns. They're important to resistance movements, but they take time. And it's time that often frontline folk don't have because they're busy fighting off the RCMP, for example, or defending their land. So taking the time to dig into their computers and do a bunch of research and gathering and processing information and communicating it is not necessarily high on the priority list, but it can be useful. And so in my time over the years of working with movements, I've come to think that 
research can be very, very useful and important, but often there's not the time for it. And at the same time, over the years of being in, in university settings, I also came to realize that there are so many, so many graduate students, even undergraduate students, and even professors who would love to do research that's actively serving the folks on the front line. They would love to be able to do research in collaboration or that is supportive of those movements and communities, but don't necessarily know how to build those relationships. On both sides, there's an interest. On both sides, there's a need, but it's not always obvious how to build those connections. I really came to feel that if there was an organization like Research for the Frontlines that could just play the role of matchmaker, not just matchmaker, but like a support infrastructure for those research collaborations, that it could mobilize a small army of researchers that could be working directly in service of frontline communities and grassroots movements. I really felt this could be really high leverage and a form of redistribution, redistribution of time. So a lot of people in universities have access to resources, have access to time to sit down and do research that others may not have. And by offering that time and skills to folks on the front lines, it could be a form of redistribution. And it went from an idea to a reality pretty fast. I secured a little bit of funding just to support my coordination time. And that's through the Climate Justice Mobilizing Hub, which is a support structure network for climate justice movements in Canada. I started building contacts, building connections with folks in movements, talking to them about what kind of research they might want or need, and then started building a network of researchers who are willing to offer their time and their skills for free on a voluntary basis. It happened very quickly, reinforcing my idea that this is a useful idea. So, you know, a bunch of projects took off right away, and we right now have about eight different projects that are either completed or continue on the go, or we have a couple more just starting. So, yeah, I would say it's still evolving. But, you know, just in the last couple of weeks, we've put together a website and launched our social media and our list of research volunteers is growing at an incredible rate. We have a list of over 60 volunteers. So, yeah, it's really coming together and I feel very happy about it. Give some examples of the kinds of research that you're finding climate and environmental justice movements and frontline communities are asking for. One of our first ones was a collaboration with Marlene Hale, who is a Wet'suwet'en land defender, but who has spent a lot of time at Fairy Creek this summer. And she really, really, really wanted to let the United Nations, especially their special rapporteur on Indigenous rights and the one on human rights, know what was going on in terms of police violence at Fairy Creek. She had us put together an information package summarizing, organizing all the instances of police violence and turning that into a very polished and well-articulated letter to the UN. And the special rapporteurs did respond to Marlene and it did lead to some meetings. Another one was there's some folks at 1492 Land Back Lane, Six Nations, who are interested as part of their land back project to cooperatively purchase and govern this property and building. And so they were interested in learning about what it takes to form a cooperative in Ontario. So we had a team that put together a quick report on all the things you need to know in setting up a cooperative. And right now we're working with some Algonquin folks to support a study about moose populations in order to support their advocacy for an ongoing moratorium on sport moose hunting in Quebec around La Vendrée Park. This is one that's just going, which will probably involve a year or two and probably a team of 10 to 15 researchers of all kinds from wildlife biologists to communication specialists and stuff to work on that one. Another one is that some incredible researchers have put together this new coalition against environmental racism in Canada. So it's led by Ingrid Waldron, who's an incredible researcher, and she's a sort of leading researcher on environmental racism in Canada. 
her and Naola Charles put together this coalition and they have a research and mapping working group that wants to map out cases of environmental racism and climate injustice all across Canada. Around the time where I heard about them, an undergraduate honors student at McGill contacted me and asked me if I would supervise her honors project and did I know any communities or movements who could use her labor? And she's specifically interested in GIS, in mapping and in environmental justice. So immediately I thought of the connection. So she's been working with them, putting many hours a week into actually leading their mapping project. Another thing we did was Indigenous Climate Action just sent a giant delegation of Indigenous folks to COP26 in Glasgow. And in the lead up to that, as they were preparing, they wanted to prepare a document for their communications team of really powerful quotes from different reports that have come out recently from the ICA research team. So we had a couple of people who did a couple of days of just volunteering before COP on extracting these powerful quotes and putting them in a document so that the ICA team could use that to advocate for Indigenous rights and Indigenous approaches to climate justice at the COP meeting in Glasgow. So there's a whole giant and surprisingly wide spectrum of kinds of research that folks are wanting to do. Tell me in a bit more detail about the project that Molly has been a part of related to the RCMP, the Kurg, and the policing of Indigenous land defense struggles on the West Coast. It started with me realizing that there was this special police force. Like I didn't know it existed. I didn't know anything about it. I'd heard about it through, because like, I had my connections up in with Soweton. They started mentioning this thing called the Kurg. And I just Googled it like you do and found like one article written about the 2019 raid on the Wet'suwet'en people. And then also the RCMP two paragraph description of what the Kurg is. Also, this branch of the police only exists in BC, where most of the land in BC is unsurrendered territory. And so because of the Supreme Court decision in 97, you know, we know that hereditary chiefs have right and title to their lands and what should be happening and are not being consulted appropriately. We know all these things already, right? So we still have these injunction laws and these licenses that are given to all these industries to continue this extraction or pipe building or whatever it is. And these injunction laws take precedent over Indigenous land rights. And there's obviously a problem in that. And as a result of these Indigenous people wanting to stand up for their lands, they're disobeying these injunctions. And there's an enforcement gap is what they call that. These are often rural communities where the police forces are quite small, and they don't have the skill sets to deal with these blockades or resistance movements. So I just ended up having a whole bunch of questions about why this group exists? When was it created? Are these trained differently than regular RCMP officers? Are they volunteer? Do they get handpicked? Do they receive special training about how to deal with large groups of people? All these kinds of things. So many questions. And I posted like a rhetorical questions on Facebook being like, what is this? Trying to see if anybody else knew anything. And then Jen and I, having known each other from the past, she disconnected with me saying, hey, I've got this group called Research for the Frontlines, and we do exactly this, like look into things and help you find information about questions that you don't have time to answer. Because I was spending a lot of time at Berry Creek where there's no cell reception, so I can't, you know, sit around and do Google searches and read academic articles in my spare time. On my end, the project started on that Facebook moment where I saw Molly post, and I thought, okay, well, there we go. There's a research need. And so we got a team together. There's five of us who meet weekly, different people and take on different tasks. And we've done interviews, lit reviews and academic research, but also we put in a bunch of access to information requests, freedom of information requests, uh, this kind of thing. But during that, we've learned so much from just starting with Molly's question of who are Kirk? Who are these people? What's up with these people? For example, our whole team now, we know how to do ATI requests. And one of the things we do at Research for the Frontlines is if we don't know how to answer a certain question 
what we'll do is reach out and find a research mentor. So we reached out to Kevin Walby, who's one of the leading researchers in Canada, about using access to information requests as a research method. And he was very willing to sit down with Molly's research team and guide us. He really mentored us on that specific research method, and now we know how to do it. And then as sort of a follow-up, we organized a public training for any researchers or frontline people who want to learn how to do ATI, FOI requests. So we're trying to build capacity to do research amongst research communities, amongst movement communities. So I feel like this project with Molly has been really amazing for me too, and that I'm learning new research methods that I'd never learned through university and meeting people like Kevin Walby and working on a team. We have a really interesting research team. We have one person who volunteers on the team who teaches English literature at Concordia. So she really helps us with editing and writing. It's really interesting to pull together a team with the different kind of skills we need. I think part of the magic of research for the front lines is gathering new tools and gathering new networks of people so we can do more stuff that's impactful and helps transform this country away from extractive colonial capitalism. And another amazing benefit, too, of being able to have access to the Research for the Frontlines team is that I've been able to take the information I've learned and spread it through the frontline community. Like the reason nobody knows about the Kurg is because there's no information out there. And my ability to get help with these questions that I had was I was able to transfer this information to other people on the front lines so they understand more of what they're facing. You know, people could have been out there for months and not even know it was a special police force that we're dealing with. With the project we've worked on with Molly, that's the first one where we've had sort of a research output, a publication, an article that came out in the Briar Patch a couple of weeks ago about this project that Molly's been leading. So anyone who has spent any time in either movements or in those little corners of universities that say they want to support movements will probably have a sense that the relationships between people on the ground and people who do research can often be fraught and difficult. In your experience, what goes into making those relationships? Uh, I think your website uses the language of effective and respectful. One of the ways that I felt really respected and heard was just because... In my work on the front lines, I often feel a little out of touch or a little ignorant in relation to certain pieces of information. But I have a lot of experience out there on the front lines. Like frontline work is really hard and it's full of a lot of communication. One of the jokes that I say is like, if it was just about saving the trees, it'd be easy. It's all the people that make it hard. So one of the things that I found really refreshing was being continuously placed in a spot of leadership amongst the group. So anytime that I was feeling maybe that I wasn't contributing as much as I felt I should be or whatever, that I just would constantly get pushed back into the spot being like, we're here because of the things that you're doing. We're here because of the questions that you asked. And we're here sort of at your service to provide the information so that you can be more effective out there on the front line and be a conduit for information for people on the front line and to disseminate this information into the public sphere, which was also part of my plan. I wanted people to know. One of the problems I had was this, was that nobody knew who this group of RCMP was, and I felt that was shocking. So for the people that I was working with, and Jen specifically, to constantly get reassured that my input was valuable and to be continuously supported despite my feelings of, you know, also like just the traumas of being out on the front line and having that be heard and understood as best as they can understand that. And yeah, it was just a really positive experience in that way, from my perspective. I'm very, very aware of and attentive to all the ways that these kind of collaborations between folks in universities and folks on the front lines tend to go bad. I imagine they go bad more often than not. And there's a huge, a giant, really dark legacy of research being extractive. 
and research benefiting the researcher at the expense of the communities they are allegedly working with. And I'm really trying to find ways to create this research for the front lines, things that actively undoes that or actively works on ensuring that those unjust relations between researchers and communities are not being replicated in the work we're doing. So one way we do that is just being very, very, very clear and very explicit with everyone working for that the decision maker is always the community or movement person. The researchers, our role is to be in service of, it's not to make decisions together. So there are some research models like participatory action research or something like that, where the model is to make decisions collaboratively, but we don't even want to do that. We want the decisions to be made by the folks we're serving, the folks, uh, the movement or frontline community folks, so that we try to make that really explicit. And that means researchers learning to relinquish control of what is the research question, what are the methods we're going to use. And sometimes our research volunteers offer suggestions like, oh, maybe this method might be useful or maybe this article that's been written might be useful to bring in. So there are suggestions, but the decision making is always with the community or movement person. So I think that clarity helps, but also the sense that there's many, many ways of knowing. There's many ways of finding information. There's many ways of interpreting information. And we try hard to not replicate this sense that academic or scholarly approaches to gathering information or interpreting information is superior. There are many ways to interpret. There's many ways to gather information. There's many ways of understanding. There's many ways of communicating. And maybe academic scholarly stuff has some ideas to offer, but it's not necessarily superior. So really trying to undo those senses of whose knowledge or whose approaches to knowledge creation are valid. And also we're providing trainings for our researchers so that we all can learn how to do research of service and learn to relinquish control of decision-making So we want to provide these kind of trainings for the researchers that work with us about what that really means. What does it really mean to do research that's relevant, that's of service to, and is determined by communities and movements. So we're trying to undo that legacy of research being really dark uh, and extractive and those collaborations replicating really unjust relations. We're really trying to undo that. And I'm sure it won't be perfect all the time, but we're doing our best. Another way these relationships goes wrong is the researcher just go away. They say they're going to do something and then they don't. They promise community some kind of follow-up and then they don't show up. So we're trying to make sure that never happens and we can do that because we have a whole giant network of people willing. So if one person cannot fulfill their commitment to that community member, well, we'll bring in someone else who can. And in one or two sentences each before we go, pitch frontline communities and movements and researchers. Tell them why they should get in touch with Research for the Frontlines. Now I've had the firsthand experience of what it's like to be a receiver of the research. I would say that the experience has been overwhelmingly positive and overwhelmingly empowering. Like I feel so much more empowered in my position and I feel so much more passionate about my position on the front lines as a result of the research that we've done. And not just that, but having the support of research for the front lines. Yeah, pitch on one side for the researchers. Here's a chance to use your skills to really contribute to the fight of our time. And for community folks and movement folks, we can put, you know, small army of researchers together to work on your project in whatever way you think is going to be most useful. You have been listening to my interview with Jen Gobby and Molly Murphy about Research for the Frontlines. To learn more about the organization, go to researchforthefrontlines.ca. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. 
On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, published by Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Thank you.